This episode of See Here is dedicated to the Brothers Leningrad. Yet, yet, Soviet. first time welcome on board my name is morris i'm joined with my good friends tim merrill in seoul in south korea howdy and over in bath mr bernard stickwell uh hello and if this is your uh, first time listening where have you been what are you what are you doing if this is your first time listening welcome on board better later than never and we hope that you continue to listen to us after this we don't want to beg that's not our way actually it is our way We're not proud. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about films that have music or musicians or musical culture somewhere in the storyline. And if you go through our previous episode, and we certainly hope that you do, you'll find that we've sometimes come a little bit close to that definition and sometimes we've gone right straight for the heart of it. We're a music film related podcast. Welcome on board. Nice to have your company. And this time around, Mr. Bernard Stickwell of Bath has gone and picked the film. And the film tonight is... Leningrad Cowboys Go America. I'm looking forward to talking about this one. I mean, I'm looking forward to talking about every film that we do, but I'm really excited to talk about this one, which is probably more than what the Leningrad Cowboys could do because they didn't <laughs> really muster much excitement in the film. So what we'll do is we'll go listen to the trailer. Where there's not any dialogue. It's all bit music, but get a feel for the music. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes to get this puppy started. <laughs> Everybody rock and roll, rock, 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 rock,
back. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 54. Morris here, Bernie over there, Tim temporarily over there, but very soon he's going to be somewhere else over there. And we're here to discuss the film Leonard Grad Cowboys Go America by the director Aki Kurosmaki. The film came out in 1989 and stars, and I hope I get these names pronounced correctly, Matty Pelenpa. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Matty Pelenpa, who plays as Vladimir, the manager of the Leonard Grad Cowboys. Carrie Van- Vananen, who plays Igor, a.k.a. the Village Idiot. Nikki Tesco, that was a bit easier, who plays as the band's lost cousin. And he was <laughs> ex-member of the members, and no doubt they'll come up in part of the conversation. And in a cameo role, Jim Jarmusch, and he's director of a whole bunch of films that we all know and love. It was written by, oh, more difficult names, Sake Jarvanpa, Mato Valtonen, and Aki Kurosmaki. Now, I'll read you two different synopses of the film. The first one is pretty shit. It's from IMDb, as per usual. Siberian rock band Leonard Grad Cowboys go to the USA in pursuit of fame. Yeah, that's pretty shit. Empire Online did a little bit better, but still not terribly happy with this. It says, an eight-strong Soviet rock band ups sticks with their manager and travel to and through America, where they are told they listen to any old shit, seeking fame, fortune, and an audience. The problem with those summaries, for me, is outside from mentioning the fact that they are a rock band, when they're not really, is that they don't truthfully convey the sort of film that this is. Every film builds its own universe, but is based on some relation to a version of reality. And what you can't get from those descriptions is, in fact, that there's a lot of surrealism in this film. Done in a subtle way, but there's a lot of that. So we'll come to that further on in the conversation. Now, Bernie... You picked this film, but I believe that this is your first time watching, so... It is, yeah, yeah. What made you pick it, and what were your initial thoughts? It's something that I've had on the list for ages, and I've always meant to get around to seeing. It just, you know, it was time to do it. I'm going to, you know, show my card straight away. I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Deadpan, surreal, funny. The best one. An analogy of communism and the Cold War, perhaps? I don't know. It was a lot of fun, and very of its time as well. It felt very much like... It is interesting that Jim Jarmusch is in it, because it reminded me very much of a Jim Jarmusch film. It's got a very, very 80s, independent kind of atmosphere to it. So, yeah, tremendous. A lot of fun. And short as well. I I love short films. One hour, 18 minutes. Just absolutely perfect. I'd seen this years and years ago. We had these pay TV channels, what we called them in Canada, in the 80s and the 90s. and, And it was on... Or actually, I think it was on cable network or something. I remember seeing it on Canadian TV. Showcase, I think it was. And what Bernie just said about the connection with Jarmusch, absolutely. I also felt like it was almost, to me, like a Vim Vanders film in a certain way. Yep, yep. And when you're in the midst of living in a society or a culture, because you're so close to the center, you really aren't able to look at it from a critical eye. And I think that some of the people that do the best perspectives on Americana are foreigners. They always have because they're the alien looking at kind of like the promised land or the idea of perfection or what they consider to be their Valhalla, so to speak. And then and getting there and then learning to coexist, you know, they're looking at everything under such scrutiny. They take such a hypersensitive, focused eye on every little aspect of what is America. That's what makes it so interesting. Like you said, you know, it's there's surrealism in it. But I think 
think a lot of every day in America, you can see things that are just absolutely surreal. But I, I think it's just from the foreign eye just really has this ability to kind of glean and pull these things out and, and make them more more prevalent on the big screen, which, I, which I've always loved. When I first watched this, which was two weeks ago for the show, I still had never seen any other Aki Kurosmaki films. And I got one other in during the period towards watching this film, but... I'd long known about the Leningrad Cowboys, and I even remember it being shown here in Melbourne at the Longford Cinema, long lamented. I know that any film that you watch should be able to be taken in isolation, and yet I sort of had this feeling after reading a really fantastic article from the Senses of Cinema website that this would be well served with at least some knowledge of what Akikoro's Mackie's filmography was about. I think he liked film about class struggle, but done in a fairly humorous sort of way. So on one regard, he seems to be maybe like the like Finland's answer to Ken Loach, but, right. with, a, but with a sense of humor. Certainly before he came up on screen, I completely got the vibe that you mentioned about this being a very Jim Jarmusch-looking film, certainly in terms of the minimal dialogue, the way how the film was shot, the Mm -hmm. panning, and the often fades to black. So just from a visual perspective. And so when we see Jim Jarmusch make an appearance, it really came as no surprise to me. And I'll sort of throw one other filmmaker from that era into the mix. And this is all very, very 90s. I don't know whether you guys are fans of the film that had Steve Buscemi and Seymour Cassell. Correct. John Moose's cinematographer or something. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got that feeling it sort of had the same thing of the fades to black, the dialogue delivery, and right. not coincidentally, I'm sure Jim Jarmusch has an appearance in that. A really great appearance with Carol Kane, if I recall correctly. Right. You eat, I go to telephone. Well, what you're talking about the dialogue delivery, I'm, like when you see a film like, for example, Jarmusch's Dead Man, how everything is just very deadpan and the mm. delivery, and everybody is just really stoic to a sense. And this whole film is the same. I right. mean, Leningrad Cowboys is just everybody is just completely stoic. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. I love the one guy that plays in the band. Looks like he's Amish with the beard. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, he's just got the cigarette hand <clears throat> in his mouth, and he's just playing. And when he's done, he takes a cigarette out and butts it out. And he's like. I'm done. I know the one you're talking about. Every time I watched them, I sort of thought, hey, Cesar Rosas from Los Lobos is making a guest appearance film. <laughs> yeah, right. Whilst we're talking about not necessarily influences, but things you can, sim- similarities with other filmmakers, a few others I would throw in. There's a slightly sort of David Lynchy quality to some of yeah, it, the way yeah. shots of frame, stillness, yeah. and I'm thinking particularly there's a scene at the start where the manager goes to see that old guy in that yeah. wooden shack with AB. It's almost like a razor head. Yeah, that structure's very Lynch. <laughs> and another possible uh, similarity, I don't know if you guys are aware, during the 80s we had a, a TV series called The Comic Strip Presents. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. It would basically be an hour-long sort of story, and yeah. it was done by a bunch of people like Aid Edmondson and Rick yeah. Mail. They did the Whoops Apocalypse. No, that was someone else, I think. Or were they involved oh, in that? I think, I, think, I thought it was Comic Strip Live, but I mean, I could be but wrong. They did a whole uh, bunch of different ones, you know, kind of takeoffs of spaghetti westerns and right. sorts of things. But some of those had a real sort of deadpan, surreal sense of humour, which I can totally see in this as well. So um, that's, that's another thing that kind of came to mind. <laughs> There's a question. 
question I have here, like when you just you just mentioned Bernie, it just came to mind about when they went to see the old man at the beginning of the film. Everybody's got that pompadour. Everybody's got that. Looks like they got a dead muskrat on their head. To me, I was under the assumption that they're almost all the same family. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then when they're going to the father, he's like the matriarch. There's the baby there in the crib with the little hair as well. But the one thing I thought it was funny was you don't see any females. No, not at all. No. no. And it's just kind of like... Very male, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like going, okay, where's the mother here? There's the father. This is kind of weird, man, because it's just... All guys all standing around like a club, you know, like a hair club yeah. for men. She's know. probably out working the farm on the tractor while the guys are playing I was the music. Say, yeah. She's the one driving the tractor, isn't she? Yeah, mm. yeah. But, but life is beautiful. It's a gift from our Lord. Think of the flowers and the animals and the birds. Look at this pretty glass. Does it want to die? No way. I just wanted to make a quick reference to the other Korosmaki film I watched in preparation for tonight's show, and that was I Hired a Contract Killer. I don't know if either of you got the chance to watch that. No, okay. I didn't get around to it, unfortunately. No, it looks okay. So that film was about a French migrant living in London in a dead-end job, and he's dumped from that job fairly early on in the film. He has no friends at work or outside of it. He's a bit of a no-hoper, and the dialogue, once again, is delivered in a very droll comedic way he decides because his life is so miserable that he's going to get a contract killer to bump him off as you know life offers him nothing and then he falls in love with this woman selling flowers in the pub and he spends the rest of the film trying to get rid of the contract killer on his trail because he's not going to stop until he completes his mission but being something of a class commentator that Korosmaki is he gives the backstory of the contract killer as well and he's a guy who's got his own demons and his own problems in life it's blackly comical but it doesn't go the obvious way that you think it's going to go this article that I read about his overall filmography if these two films are a good sample it's probably pretty accurate that this whole thing about inspecting what goes on in the class system does seem to be a strong theme of mm. Korosmaki's films. And like on the one hand, yeah. I've, I've read some articles that said, yeah, this is a fun but slight film. I don't think that they were really inspecting it enough because I think that there's a lot going on here. And the, sure, it's a really fun film and you can just watch it from the surface, but there's things here which Korosmaki is saying and that we get, but without sort of being hit on the head, like as if you're watching a film like Raining Stones or Kez by... Sure, yeah, yeah. That documentary, there's a brief sort of half-hour interview on YouTube where Jonathan Ross talks to Aki Karismaki. And, and in that, Karismaki says, well, there's only one story. It's basically people trying to survive the life that they're born into. And I, I think that's a fantastic description. It, of, it seems of, you know, everything he's ever done. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. And this totally fits that kind of brief, doesn't it? One thing I've noticed, or at least my feeling from this film, too, was that in some ways it was very similar to, you know, another film that came out of Canada, Highway 61. Oh, I love that mm-hmm. film. Bruce McDonald. Yeah, and the idea of the Odyssey, the idea of trying to reach, like I say, you know, not necessarily Valhalla, but just that the higher level of where, you know, the, how can I say, the promised land, you know? There is certain mythologies that talk about where they carried the dead with them. And they carry oh, the dead. Sure, yeah. To, to actually put the dead, you know, to bury them in a greater place than where they began. 
and about the responsibility of carrying on the dead and honoring the dead. And I think there's a little bit of mythology in this too. I, I just That's just what I felt from this. Unlike a lot of other journey films or road films, I sort of think that the general aim is to present a story and they do it to some extent in Highway 61 as the example that you've raised where yeah. the character that we have at the beginning of the film, whoever the protagonist is, we know that if he's going or she's going to take a journey by the end of the film, they're not the same character that they were right. at the beginning of the film. They've grown in some way or they've changed, their experiences changed them. And yet, I don't think that's the case with this film. And I'm not, that's not a criticism. I think that's just Cora's Mackey's approach. The Leningrad Cowboys... I think that is the point that he's trying to make. It's like, you know, you can go on this journey. And as you say, normally the, the tradition is that the person has changed on the journey, but you're not. It's just, it's part of the life you're born into and you're trying to survive, isn't it? In a way, they did change, though. They absolutely did, because I think there's the idea that if you look at the Leningrad Cowboys, for anyone who has not seen this film, they start out basically playing the music that they like and the music that they know. And it could almost be Eastern European folk music, Slavic folk music, whatever. And as they go on, they're almost like a sponge where they start to absorb elements from different aspects of music, rock and roll and Elvis, and then you know, Steppenwolf. And then eventually the end of the conclusion of the film, they get into Tejano, Mexican music. But I'm saying that they were almost in the beginning like an empty jukebox where they only had one record. And as they went along, they started adding more records to the jukebox. Is that because this is their gig and they're just doing that because they, right, have, they to have, have to play what the, the people like because at the start right. when they audition for that guy he's like no you're shit you need to learn how to play rock and roll right. and they go and get the you know the rock and roll guidebook or whatever it is <laughs> <laughs> Morris you have you have to say it yeah I will oh, okay <laughs> do, do you have the rock and roll certainly <laughs> yeah. may I buy it yep. sure help yourself do you have rock and roll of course can I buy it? Sure. Help yourself. We have to learn rock and roll. I bought your book. <laughs> it, it also reminded me, too, of a buddy of mine years ago who was in a band. And what you're saying, Bernie, is right. It's 50-50. My buddy used to play weddings, and they would play, like, anniversaries or birthday parties and that, you know, and... All of a sudden, some girl comes up and says, I want to hear Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? And then, you know, and then their drummer says, we don't play that. And it's like, we do now. <laughs> you know, and they and they had to do it. But but the thing is, you change your maybe your your ideals. A lot of people try to stick to morals. They say, you know, like we're a rock and roll band. We don't play that other pussy shit or we don't play this. We don't play that. But people change, you know. They, versus commerce, I guess. Isn't right, it? It's, exactly. It's, yeah. To get by, like you're saying, you know, like they have to survive, so they have to play what people want. They have to change. I read this article. I'm coming back to the article that I read in Senses of Cinema. And if I'm interpreting this right, they made an interesting point about the film where the band, yeah, sure, they adapt everywhere that they go so they can survive. But I don't think that they're actually trying to survive. They're trying to live up to the image that they're manager who really doesn't understand America. There's been this, I don't know if you want to call it a myth 
or an ideal that America was going to be the great big melting pot and right. everyone was going to come put in a little bit of what they did and develop one big homogenous flavor or at least it was going to be little bits of each culture that was going to be recognizable in the overall scheme of what America is defined by. We're looking at America today and we see that that's probably a long way from the truth. And the Leningrad Cowboys, every stop that they play at just about, they meet with absolutely no success and they find that they can't even succeed on American terms. So they go to a town and they say, right, okay, they, they play Shanana. They play some country music somewhere and they get kicked out. And it turns out that the only place, really, that they're able to be successful, I think, was in the biker bar where Nicky Tesco leads them through Born to be Wild. He just sort of says, right, this is how you be really American. He comes across with the American accent so they no longer see them as these guys with the fake quiffs. But they can't really succeed in America on American terms. And they sure as hell can't succeed in America on their own terms. And so I think that puts paid to the whole notion of about America being this great melting pot. Anything that's a little bit different, we're not going to accept. I mean, this is obviously a great big generalization, and I'm sure I'm going to upset a lot of the American listeners out there. Sorry about that. But this is just one interpretation that I'd read that made complete sense to me. When we get to the end of the film, and Tim, you said that and they go to play quite successfully at this wedding, the Tex-Mex style of music. And yet listening to the music that you hear at the beginning of the film, while they're still in that little shed on the farm. It's not that far off. It, correct. Yeah. It's, it's still yep. it, folk music of both types. <laughs> So America didn't get it, but Mexico got it. We don't know the success of what would have been in Siberia, but it's not a long way. So in Mexico, they were able to sort of say, right, well, we'll play what you do, but it's pretty familiar to us, and they were successful at it. Now, this might sound like a stretch, but in a way, they, they kind of reminded me of The Residents, the band The Residents, in a sense that, of course, The Residents were doing everything they did very tongue-in-cheek, but what the residents did was kind of tried to represent Western culture in a way that they saw it from a foreign perspective, from the alien perspective, the outsider looking in at Western culture and trying to decipher it and trying to kind of see what makes it tick or, you know, what the really the heart of it all. And I think in a way, the Leningrad Cowboys, it was the same way like the residents, like how they're trying to kind of say, well, we're trying to understand this thing, you know, in front of us. How do we penetrate it? How do we approach it? 
it. And you see them trying to do this in so many different ways, you know, trying to get to the heart of what it is to be American or, like you said, how to succeed in America. And I think in a way, because they have no clue, in America they say to anybody who wants to be famous, you've got to become um, individual, you know, you've got to become uh, unique. You know, you've got to do something nobody else does. You know, you've got to stand out in the crowd. And these guys, you know, it's not even so much because of their hair, it's because of the fact that they're trying to take a crack at something that they really don't understand. And in doing so, it's really making them, you know, it really makes them stand out. But they're not successful because of it, are they? The big lie. Hello. Yeah, absolutely. Hello. Huh? We are a rock and roll band. Can we play here? Sure, help yourself. 50-50. Okay. I wanted to ask, had either of you had a chance to watch either of the other two films in the trilogy? No. No, no. Okay, so neither had I. There's one bona fide sequel, Leningrad Cowboys Meet Moses. So at the end of this film, Vladimir, their manager, walks off into the night and, as it says on the screen, never to be heard from again. But in the sequel, he actually does come back. I think five years later, the band have integrated themselves into the town where they are in Mexico. They've become locals and he comes comes back saying, I am not Vladimir, I am Moses, and I've come to lead you back to the promised land, which is Siberia. So it's basically the reverse <laughs> journey as they go back to Siberia. I'd heard things about it that said it wasn't so great. I didn't make it a huge priority okay. to go back and watch that. But the other film, which I had known about, and I remember, I'm pretty sure I'd been showing in the cinema here, was called The Total Balalaika Show. And yes. just like The Monkees or The Commitments, this was... A fictitious band that had then become a band in the real world. So the Total Balalaika show had the members of the Leningrad Cowboys doing their thing in a stadium somewhere in Helsinki with thousands of rabid fans watching them do their thing. Now, weren't they actually a band anyway before, before Leningrad Cowboys? No, they so were called Sleepy something or other, the, weren't they? No, there, were, there was a band called the Sleepy Sleepers. Now I'll look them up. That's and it. Yeah, yeah. Once again, they were a comedy rock band. But oh, okay, all right. And, and, I think like, a couple of members of that band came up with the idea with Aki Kurosmaki one night late in the pub and they wanted to sort of say, right, well, how would a Russian band cope in those days of glasnost you know, how would they cope being seen by Western audiences? And they made a couple of film clips that weren't really with the Leningrad Cowboys as we came to see them in the film, but just a couple of characters with their hair quiffed. But the beginning of the film clip, so there was one Rocky Six, which was quite funny, one called Through the Wire, which featured Nicky Tesco and had them doing a version of L.A. Woman. Maybe the drummer had the hair quiff or maybe one other member, but it looked nothing like the Blues Brothers suits and the full-on hair quiffs and the long shoes that we got to see in this film. Putting that aside that there was a band called the Sleepy Sleepers, this concert was celebrating the whole notion of the Leningrad Cowboys. So I've watched a couple of film clips on YouTube and it's just basically these guys with the hair quiffs and an orchestra and a Russian choir doing 
their versions of Western songs like, you know, Sweet Home Alabama or Those Were the Days, whatever it might be. And for me, I mean, I haven't seen the film and I know that there are some people who love it and I'm pretty sure Eric Peterson out there, he's a big fan. I'm pretty sure he posted something about how he likes it. The whole notion to me, and I know that this is a bad thing saying you have a problem with something without seeing it, but what I find so charming and wonderful about the first film was the notion of this band who were sort of a fish out of water and they couldn't achieve any success and they take this road trip and the whole notion of them making this big stadium tour, their lack of success success dictated in the fictitious world. It's something of an irony that they then get to be huge in the real world because of the visuals of the film. I mean, if they were just a band who dressed the way they dressed and maybe played pop songs with a squeeze box and a couple of horns, they would not be playing big stadiums in Helsinki. So I just sort of found there was something of an irony there, and it may be a lot of fun to watch, but I just didn't find myself drawn to actually watching it and you know the commitments and the monkeys they did achieve that sort of success in the real world and you know i mean in, in the case of the commitments once again i didn't sort of see the po- a, a wonderful wonderful film but they were just a soul cover band and really what was the point the monkeys a different story because they were coming up with new songs and i'm not going to have the debate here about the real bands not real band but at least what they were doing made a bit more sense but i just sort of think well okay so the leningrad cowboys weren't the first band to sort of come up with this leap into the real world world but because of the charm of what the first fictitious film represented to me I sort of didn't feel that drawn to watching a huge thousands adoration concert film hey hey what the shit is going on here this guy's frozen where you taking this guy we're going to bury him Chuck you got a permit to do this no is the body a US citizen no well how you know this guy's dead I mean loaded down with beer you know ice I mean you know, this is going to cost you a few days in jail. They show how them playing the music that they originally played wasn't really going over in the United States. But then you look at modern times and you get bands like Gogo Bordello and who are just basically playing like Eastern European gypsy music and it goes over huge. So it's just so funny is, you know, it makes you wonder whether or not it's a matter of time. It was the 80s. Like, I don't know. Well, there were a couple of instances, I guess, you know, the 80s threw at us the Gypsy Kings and the early 90s threw at us the Buena Vista Social Club. And both were absolutely huge in their time. So, you know, occasionally there is that lightning in a bottle. Yeah, yeah so I guess it's just the right time, right place kind of thing, isn't it? And I guess even then, the Buena Vista Social Club, they had the film, they had the documentary, which, okay, I guess, you know, documentaries about elderly men playing music from South America is not necessarily necessarily the sort of thing that becomes huge anyway but yeah once again as you say right time right place do you know why the audience doesn't like us you are too paid people here like healthy looking bands like the beats boys look at yourself you look sick then give us more food the problem we have is not food problem you need sunshine and fresh air so can I ask you guys uh, a question? The, the version of this that I watched didn't have subtitles. 
but there's only about four lines in Finnish in the film anyway, so I don't think I missed a huge amount. But the village idiot, the yep. guy that seems to be following them across America, quite get the gist of why he was doing that. Was it because he wanted to be a Leningrad cowboy, but didn't if, have the quiff for it? If you go through the whole interpretation that the band is packed with brothers and cousins, then he's that outsider cousin who can't quite get the hair quiff, so no, okay, you're, right. you're not one of us. And there you go. See, like, you get several levels. You have the Leningrad yeah. cowboys are rejected in America, and he, the village idiot, is rejected by them. So there's a yeah, hierarchy. Yeah. There's a pecking order. Right. So that probably leads to the next point I wanted to talk about was the, the actual humour in the film. And Kurosmaki is deliberately keeping things low and bubbling. You know, so it's very rarely belly laughs. But because he keeps things on the low and bubbly that there are points in the films where something unexpected happens and I found myself that I did burst out laughing probably in contrast to how everything else it was kept fairly low level so for instance there's that bit in the film where they're all driving I can't remember it might have been towards Memphis we see Vladimir in the front of the car their manager and he's drinking down all this beer <laughs> and one of them says to the other one I wonder where he gets all that beer me too and then a moment later, they pull into the service station. He gets out of the front of the car. And one of them opens up the back door of the car and about a thousand cans of beer come out of the car. Now, in any other film, if it had been packed full of great dialogue, cracking humorous dialogue or lots of other visual diagrams, that'd be just an ordinary gag. But in contrast right. to what else we were watching, I just found myself bursting out laughing. And I watched the film twice in preparation for this and I cracked up both times. I right. loved that. Or There's a line I love too where they get a um, buddy in the car and... Can you play music? No. Can you drive a car? No. All right, we'll be the sooner. All right! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. I like the scene where they get the job being the country band at that uh, Club Chivago, is it? Yes, yes. And the guy says... Can he sing country music? He's the best. How come I never heard of him before then? We've been touring in Norway for years, that's why. Have you got a band? The best one. All right. I'll give you a week. But only because Kenny Rogers cancelled. So you just see them playing on stage and then it cuts back to uh, the manager talking to the uh, the owner of the club. And he says, here's your money. Take it and never come back. <laughs> and as you see them filing out of the club, there's a big sign that says Club Zhivago for sale. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Everybody says that to them. I mean, when they when they get busted in New Orleans and they wind up going to jail, they're all sitting there playing their tin cups in the in the cell, and then they're walking out, and then the, and the cops says, "And don't come back." I really love one scene in this where the village idiot guy he goes in and he's desperately trying to get hair extensions, and the barber's like, "No, can't do it," and he feeds him, and the barber's sitting there just pulls up this acoustic guitar and starts playing this amazing song. So love. That's to me where like the Vim Vendors elements were coming out in this film or else there's another scene when they're feeding a little puppy and they're out on the street and they're feeding this little dog you know like there's just little tiny aspects of this 
that totally remind me of vendors, you know, or like or when the village idiot is sleeping in a box outside or when they're all up sleeping on the rooftop in New York and they all have cots on the roof of a building. It's surreal, but it's almost got a kind of magical realism to it. Right. As well. well, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Like, wings yeah. of Desire, Wings of Desire yeah. and stuff like that. Like it, it totally just, get, you know, vendors always has that same kind of feel like this it, it, it's not real but it's almost real one thing i wanted to make mention of and like you guys have sort of already gone to mention i think tim you said something about the scene in the jail cell and mm-hmm. the thing that i really loved about this film was with a lot of stories about bands or even bands in real life they play to rehearse or they play to perform and the rest of the life is real life and these guys and there's the element of surrealism in this everywhere they go they play music because it's what they probably did you can invent this backstory that growing up together as brothers and cousins they always played music it's part of who they are so whether they're sitting around the campfire or they're in the jail cell for five continuous days and they're tapping those rhythms out with the cups because they've got nothing else to do. Or they're sitting on the rooftop while that New York promoter is letting them have a night (laughs) in the cots on top of his building. They're playing music there. Everywhere they go, they play music for themselves. Yeah, they're doing rock and roll and country for the Americans, but they're playing their music for themselves. And that's one big thing that I take away from this film. We can try and succeed in music as a career, but ultimately the power of music is we should be playing it for ourselves. I know it sounds very... I don't know, it sounds well, no, it's, a little, it's, a little it's bit It's who wanky. they are, it's what defines them, isn't right, it? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. And he, he does it without it being too heavy-handed. If it had been an American filmmaker, I think it would have been really heavy-handed. He would have said something like, oh, the, the power of music, it was always in you. But there's never that language in here. There's minimal dialogue, and we just get it through their actions. And I, I just, I really loved that side about it, that you know, music was something that was very personal for them. Yes, they played to make others happy, but they also played music because it was breathing to them. It's almost like an emotion. All throughout the film, when, at the beginning, when they're playing for that, seems like he's like some type of government guy. Everybody's all smiling, like overly smiling, and they're overly peppy. And it's just, it's just overly like, yeah, 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 way overboard. But then the scene on the rooftop, when they're pretty much like they don't have a pot to piss in and they don't know what they're going to do, it's very solemn music. So the music is very expressive of, of the motion in the scenes. Every, all throughout, I mean, every song that they play, it just seems it matches the scene in terms of emotion. Well, that scene around the campfire, where yep. they've finally taken control of their life. They've gone and tied up Vladimir, who's been the authoritarian figure and been completely unreasonable and eaten filet mignon while they eat onions. They've finally <laughs> taken control of him. So they're happy. They've, you know, they're sitting around the campfire. They have no food, but... They've taken control of themselves, so the music is boisterous. Absolutely, yeah, that's a that's a great right. point. I love when the village idiot shows up and uh, he unties the manager, and then it kind of fades to black, and the uh, the sign comes up on the screen saying "Democracy returns." <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that was very good. Or when Buddy gets the shit kicked out of him. 
That was yes, pretty that's, funny. I was going to mention that earlier. He went, they give him money to buy some food, and he comes back with this kind of gaudy orange, ill-fitting yeah. suit, and it just fades to black, and it says they beat him badly. Yeah. <laughs> that's the going back to what you were saying just now, Morris. For, I mean, I, I'm no expert here because I've not seen any of his other films, but doing a little bit of reading and watching some interviews with him and stuff, I think a big part of what Kurosaki does is about acceptance and about acceptance of your place in the scheme of things mm-hmm. and the Leningrad Cowboys are they're musicians and they've accepted that and that's who they are and that's kind of what defines them mm-hmm. look I listened to that interview that you sent me the link to with Jonathan Ross and despite yeah. the fact I, I, I could never be quite sure whether Kuros Mackie was just taking the piss out of Jonathan Ross or that's the thing he's very obtuse isn't he yeah but, yeah yeah, uh, yeah. In a sly funny way. yeah yeah but it seems to me that in this film he's really trying to say well their conditions are dire and even in the film I hired a contract killer which does have some dire moments but it does end in a sort of positive sort of way it's not like the world has turned to shit and there's nothing we can do about it but in that interview with Jonathan Ross it almost seemed like that was exactly the way how we thought but I think yeah I I suspect he was playing that role a little bit yeah yeah. because I mean it's you know he's all about seeing the humanity in people in those situations despite his kind of negative outlook and oh yeah all my films are shit and we don't use the camera we don't use the camera that much because we're generally hung over and it's really difficult to push the cameras around when you're feeling shitty um despite all that thing you know he, he's definitely I think, he, I think you could say he's probably a humanist couldn't you he's definitely mm. all about the human experience coming back to the things that made me burst out with a belly laugh and it was the opening scene of the film that was so unexpected where you get the title card somewhere in the frozen tundra and we get the camera that's slowly panning we see these fields the forests the tractors slowly panning and then you see what looks like a dead guy with a quiff lying on the ground (laughs) stabbed with his bass guitar that's when the music starts playing I mean you walk in knowing if you'd been to the cinema you would have known what it was that you were in for but if you came in completely cold had never shown this to anyone that would be the last thing that you'd be expecting to see with this wide pan of uh, that opening scene and that was another moment that really made me burst out laughing I wanted to talk briefly about the two main acting appearances in the film. And when I say the two main, I want to talk a bit about Matty Palenpar, who I believe is a Kurosmaki regular in his role as Vladimir and mm-hmm. Igor, the so-called village idiot. So I wanted to sort of get from you guys how you think they panned out. I, well, I don't think Vladimir doesn't really um, seem to have much of a character arc or anything, does he? I mean, this is the, the problem with... Well, not the problem, but maybe the point of the film is that there's just there's not much range at all and that's kind of the point i think you know they both uh, acquit themselves admirably but without having seen them in other movies 
it's difficult to tell whether <laughs> the performance they're putting in is good or not because everybody acts in that just kind of deadpan manner even the uh, you know the american actors who crop up in it well, i have to say actors i don't i think a lot of them were just people right who happened to be there once they were filming yeah yeah but it's all very downplayed and deadpan i don't really know how to answer that morris <laughs> so look <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this, and okay, look, I'll start off with Igor. Now, as the character without any dialogue in the film, he really only had facial emotion or body movements to convey his character. And every time he thinks he's going to get closer to the cowboys, they either reject him or they drive off when he's got that fish that he's caught for them to try and ingratiate himself with them the look of disappointment on his face and how his body reacts in accordance with that disappointment i thought was absolutely brilliant really i mean just because you deliver dialogue in a certain way or you don't have any dialogue doesn't mean that you're not conveying how you Mm -hmm. feel at that point and i just think at every point i felt his sense of disappointment i think he really conveyed that very well and yeah vladimir everything he's doing it's a takeoff on what we know as the stoic Russian, do you have rock and roll? Do you have rock and roll? He's a guy who thinks, right, I'm in charge of this group. I'm going to be their Colonel Tom Parker. I'm going to take them to the top. And yet he's the real village idiot because he's out of place. He's the fish out of water. The band themselves are in a bubble because they're just going to do whatever they do, wherever they play. And you know, it's pretty much America is to react around them rather than them being in America and saying, oh, gosh, we're not doing things right. Oh, woe is me. Whereas that's more Vladimir's role. He's befuddled. He goes into the shop and he's told by the new York promoter. Here we have something different. It's called rock and roll. Oh, okay. What is this rock and roll? I have to react to that. And everywhere he goes, he's trying to keep some level of stoicism. And well, there's that moment around the campfire where he finally loses his nut and he goes and hits them with a piece of bark or something like that. And they're all saying, oh, no, no. (laughs) And it's very surreal and very, very funny. I think as well, I mentioned earlier, you can take this as a sort of analogy of communism. Mm. And that's exactly his role, isn't it? He's kind of like the Leningrad cowboys of the, uh, you know, the proletariat, as it were. He's the, uh, you know, the the kind of the powers that be within the communist structure who, of course, is being corrupted by the money and so forth. You know, he's letting them all eat onions whilst he's eating the filet mignon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not really subtle at all, is it? (laughs) No. As you already mentioned, that moment, that was hysterical, the the title card that says, and democracy was restored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love how he keeps all the beer up there with the dead guy on ice. And, well, that's the other thing. We get the notion that, you know, Igor is the village idiot, and yet he's the one who rescues them twice. He's the one who comes with the big fish. He saves them. And at the end of the film, he's the only one who realizes that their bass player, who's been in the coffin all the way through the film, is not, in fact, dead. He's frozen, so he gets a hairdryer. He puts some whiskey in his mouth, and then he climbs out, and he's playing bass with the band in uh, Tex-Mex formation. So he's the real hero of the film in some way, so, yeah, far from the village, idiot. Welcome, welcome. We've been waiting for you. Yes, that's why we came. We are the Leningrad Cowboys. Any final thoughts? Anything that we hadn't covered yet that you wanted to convey? I don't think so. Just that, uh, actually, uh, the one thing I was going to mention, now I say that, I look at my notes, the New Orleans funeral scene, <laughs> uh, just before they end up in prison. Yep. I think somebody tell who is it, uh, speaks to Vladimir and says, you need to bury your bass player. I think we better bury him. 
soon. How come? Yes. And so they have this kind of funeral procession through New Orleans. And again, it's that kind of traditional Dixieland folk song kind of thing. That, that whole scene is just beautiful. And obviously all the locals, the people who were there, just watching it happen and then joining in and strolling along behind them. And then the policemen showing up and busting them and all the beer cans falling out of the coffin. Tremendous. Well, probably another statement on white America not yeah, being able to take course, anything yeah, yeah. that's different. So the New Orleans people, they dig them. There's probably one of the yeah. only places along the way that just accepts them for who they are. And you know, but the white cop with the moustache shows up and says, have you got a permit for this? You can't do this. I'm going to have to put you in prison. That's right. It says it all, yeah. Believe it or not, I think this would make a really wicked double bill with something like the Blues Brothers. Oh, completely, 100%. They're the you other... You see an influence there, can you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of aspects that are very similar in both films to me. Playing the shit kicker bar and and just the whole keeping the band together, just all of it. I don't know. It's another road trip film where the characters that they are at the beginning of the film are the characters that they are at the end of the film, and they're in their little bubble, and they just have a mission. We just have to get five thousand dollars, or we just right. have to get to Mexico and play. We're going to do it, and people along the way don't actually accept us for who we are. So right, yeah. right. I'd, um, I'd I'd be very surprised if Karismaki hadn't seen uh, the Blues Brothers. Oh yeah, that's what. This sense of uh, fashion style. Absolutely. I love the bit when you talk about fashion style. He's nailing the end of his shoe. <laughs> that was awesome. So he can drive, so he can right. uh, operate yeah. the gas pedal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the other gag as well, isn't it? He's kicking the tire to see uh, <laughs> what sort of state it's in, and then he punctures it with his shoe and just casually yeah. walks off sling. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is the thing. The more we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, there are actually quite a lot of belly laughs for me in this film. I want to give some credit to my daughter, Amelia. The second time I watched this was just about three nights ago, and I said to her, look, this is a film that I'm talking about on the podcast. Come and watch it with me, because I think it's something that you'll like. And she absolutely loved it. And the thing that she made note of, and I don't know whether Korosmaki intended this or not, but I really liked the fact that she was thinking in this line. So the very end of the film, we see the band playing in Mexico and they're having a wonderful time at the wedding and the locals are really enjoying them and we see this shot of Vladimir he's just watching the band almost as if he's thinking right well the mission is accomplished I've got nothing more to contribute so just before he walks away he goes to this big cactus hedge if you will oh yeah and he bends down tequila there's a tap underneath it and he siphons off some tequila so like all throughout the film he's getting beer at the band's expense or he's eating food at the band's expense and Amelia said to me that she saw that big cactus plant as a metaphor for the band itself and for one final time before he walked into that night he was going to take advantage of them and (laughs) take off that little bit of tequila and it just blew my mind I'm thinking it won't be too long before we got to invite her on the podcast I want to get her interpretation but just that little bit at the end it just really blew me away so Amelia darling I don't know if you're listening to this but there you go credit to you you've done a great job well Uh, I think she's definitely up for a co-host position on our uh, Aki's Charismaki cast that starts. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. that's right. Yeah, uh, Keeping under wraps. Yeah. The, the Aki yeah. cast, yeah. Well, he's certainly got enough films out there. I mean, I think his most recent film came out only last year. I can't remember what it was yeah, called. but Yeah, yeah, 2017, I think, yeah. I was looking on the internet earlier, and there's a, a very nice Blu-ray box set you can get of all his films. 
Send me the link. Very, very tempting. But Maybe um, the Aki cast isn't a joke. Who knows? Those two films that I watched in preparation for this, so this and I hired a contract killer, have definitely convinced me I really want to dive in deep into his film catalogue. And if you're out there and you've watched a bunch of his films, please post on the Facebook page for See Here your favourite Aki Kurosmaki films, which ones you think are essential that we should watch. And I know that a lot of people have sort of gone and spoken about, I think, a trilogy that he made just before this called The Proletariat Trilogy. There's a mixture of heartbreak with a little bit of humour in those films. But yeah, I think what you were saying before, Bernie, about him being a humanist, it certainly seems from the description that I've read that it's Mm -hmm. probably very accurate in terms of what he does. So yeah, I definitely want to go down the uh, Kurosmaki rabbit hole over the next few months. Yeah, me too. Let's meet up. Let's start AkiCast. Yeah, (laughs) I'll see you down there. Mm. Yeah. All right, so that concludes our discussion on Leonard Grad Cowboys Go America. Thanks very much for suggesting that, Bernie. I can't believe I never got round to that. That was um, yeah, me too. It's, it's shocking we hadn't seen it up till now. Such mm. a good film. So next month, that will be August of 2018. I think normally we were supposed to go for our second request for the year. And if once again, if you're new to the show, at the beginning of every year for the last three years or so, we've asked the members on our Facebook group to come up with some suggestions of what films they'd like us to cover and this year we picked three films out of the many selections. I was really quite happy that we had about 20 or 30 suggestions from the listenership. We picked three, we've done one of them, but we're actually not going to cover one of the requests now until September because we have an interview arranged for next month and uh, our good friend over at the projection booth, Mike White, made this suggestion to me. There's a film called The Icarus Line Must Die, directed by a fellow called Michael Grodner and this is a fictionalized account about a real band called the Icarus Line who uh, were out of Los Angeles and were part of the post-hardcore scene over there in LA and they tried for many many years to succeed and they never sort of did and there were some tragic events that led to them finally calling it a day and this film is sort of a fictionalized account about those events the director uh, michael grodner has agreed to an interview with us we're going to watch the film and then have a conversation with him about the real band about the film and probably about the la punk scene and i'm sure that you guys are far more well versed than i am with it so i'll be relying on you i'm really looking forward to watching this film the trailer looked absolutely amazing so looking forward to watching the film and having a chat with Michael about uh, the making of it should be great so that will be episode 55 of See Here if you want to get in contact with us you can send us an email at seeherepodcast at gmail.com or you can join the Facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R and start up a conversation about any music related film I think that pretty much covers it any other thoughts from you two gents anything you want to bring up I just want to say uh, thank you to all those that listen and uh, to anyone who uh, listening for the first time please recommend this uh, to your friends and get everyone else to bend an ear and we are the most open and receptive podcast out there and I want to make that known because anybody who has any suggestions please put them forward and uh, we're open to all a documentary is all music related film as Morris said anything that you know you think that we should be uh, making note of 
please let us know. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to watch uh, you two rattle and hum, though, no matter how much you beg. Oh. So, other than watch, that, watch, watch what? Said. Watch what? <laughs> there we go, exactly. Well, even <laughs> even Terry Frost had his price where he covered the Star Wars trilogy because someone paid him to do it. So, you know, I mean, you never know. But... Oh, well, yeah, maybe we could be open to uh, to something then. Let's let's see what kind of figures you're throwing at us. How <laughs> look, much will you pay us well, look, we to set... cover YouTube's rattle and hum? We did sit through the apple. But then again, I guess rattle and hum doesn't have a line as amusing as a real, real, real life vampire or something like that. So that did have that going for it. Well, plus the other bonus with uh, the apple, of course, is that it didn't feature you too. So that, you, you're true. You're, you're yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did want to make so one final thing and if you sort of like going back through previous episodes especially quite recently we're always open to having uh, guest presenters with us so we've had other bloggers other podcasters just anyone who loves a great film and is willing to talk about it with us we're happy to have you on so if there's a film out there that you're passionate about a music related film and you think you can gabble on for an hour with us then just reach out we'd love to have you on we're very democratic that way. We're very proactive um, in that I way. Did, sorry, Morris. I did just want to say as well, we now have uh, an Instagram account. So if you want to follow us on Instagram, mm. it's see here podcast, all one word, us up. And um, you can contact us via, it's uh, see here podcast at Gmail as well, isn't it, Morris? It is, yes. Yeah. So please follow us on Instagram, email us, uh, like us on Facebook, join the group, be part of the fun. Mm, indeed. I think until next month, we'll say keep listening to rock and roll, be nice to each other, and don't eat too many onions. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.